according to His promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me if you would. Well, let's see. Let's start with John 18.1. We're going to be in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John today, but John is very short, so we'll start there. John 18.1. Oh, yeah, projector. We're beginning a new episode today. Because I believe we concluded the John 17 prayer last week. O righteous Father, although the world has not known You, yet I have known You, and these have known that You sent Me. And I have made Your name known to them and will make it known, so that the love with which You loved Me may be in them and I in them. Boy, what a way to close a prayer, huh? (laughs) When Jesus had spoken these words, He went forth with His disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which He entered with His disciples. And that's it. That's the only verse we're going to look at today from John 18, because by the time we get to verse 2, that actually takes us to event 25, the betrayal and the arrest. Uh, We're not going to deal with the arrest today. We're still, that's episode 25 in the Harmony, episode 24 is where we are today, the grief of Gethsemane. Episode 24, the grief of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, those three chapters. And uh, although I think we'll we'll pick up some details here and there out of Luke, I think the bulk of our time today is going to be in Matthew, uh, Matthew 26. It has the longest of the accounts. And, uh, and it's almost word for word uh, equal to anything that Mark has to say. Um, where we do have a few uh, phraseology differences and a few other medical details, you know, the sweating, great drops of blood and stuff like that, uh, we'll, we'll glean that out of uh, Dr. Luke and his record. Uh, but really, the bulk of what we're looking at is, uh, is going to come from Matthew chapter 26 today. All right. But again, John 18.1 is where we start. Uh, He went with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden, in which he entered with his disciples. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are humble under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before your throne of grace this morning. And, uh, Father, I think in any, any passage of Scripture, obviously, Father, your, uh, your mind is infinite. Your truth is eternal. And we are finite temporal beings. And uh, if we didn't have the Holy Spirit to guide us in the truth, uh, where would we be, Father? And, that, and that's true for any passage of Scripture. But maybe uh, more than ever, this passage here, Father, the grief of Gethsemane, as we, uh, as we read about our Savior and His struggles, as we uh, read the description of the agony that He was in, Father, um, I'm convinced that there's no way we can totally understand the, the, uh, the battle that He went through. We don't have the capacity to understand it, Father. The, uh, all we can relate to is the sinfulness of, of one human being, uh, Father, but the sinfulness of billions uh, placed upon him and wrath poured out, Father. Um, what he was anticipating, all we can do is, is try to imagine and then, uh, and then leave it in, uh, for your Holy Spirit to, to make it clear. So, Father, open the eyes of our understanding. Give us ears to hear. Soften our hearts, Father, that we might receive the word implanted. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, again, this is episode 24. Remember, all the numberings get restarted with each section of the harmony. And so for this section, which is called Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem, 
we uh, have episode 24 now upon us. Uh, we will have one final section uh, after his death called the uh, resurrection ministry of Jesus. And so uh, that will be the, the final portion there where the, the numbers will get reset back to one again and work our way through the 40 days of resurrection ministry. Um, in any event, uh, Kidron, Kidron. Well, let's... Uh, Leave that for now. Just remember these terms, Kidron, which doesn't show up in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, uh, and Garden, which doesn't show up in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or even the term Ravine, although Ravine goes with Kidron. Uh, the term Ravine does not show up in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So what is this uh, Ravine of Kidron? And uh, why did Matthew, Mark, and Luke not talk about it? Well, let's go to Matthew 26.30. Matthew 26.30. Matthew and Mark both have a single verse that sits by itself, followed by a gap, then a, a group of verses. Uh, Luke doesn't have that, and because of the order that Luke presents things in, it's not necessary to have that gap. Um, but that's uh, what we deal with as we harmonize the synoptic Gospels and, and also bring in the Gospel of John as well. So in Matthew 26, this episode is featured in verse 30. And then verses 36 through 46. We've already taught verses 31 through 35 in uh, previous, uh, previous classes. So in Matthew 26, as you have the order of things here, you've got the, the, uh, the upper room and all the preparations there and the, the uh, uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread and this, uh, this here and then the departure of, of Judas, uh, the uh, Last Supper that's instituted here in 26 through 29. And then finally, the, um, the ending of that in verse 30. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They went out to the Mount of Olives. And so that's our equivalent geographical statement to uh, cross the ravine, Kidron, uh, to a place where there was a garden. All right? They went out to the Mount of Olives. And so long as the garden across the ravine, Kidron, is on the Mount of Olives, then we have two statements that are in agreement one with another. Uh, these other verses here, 31 through 35, uh, Jesus said to them, you will fall away. We've taught this already. We connected it with another episode uh, earlier in, uh, before they actually left the upper room. And, and uh, there's really no issues with that. It does reconcile very well with uh, the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John. And uh, this, well, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. Um, and so forth. Well, we're going to see on this very night, Peter's going to deny him three times and that rooster's going to crow. And uh, Peter will remember that the Lord said this just a few hours ago. All right. So from verse 30, we then skip down to verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So we got the name Gethsemane. This name shows up in Matthew and Mark. It does not show up in Luke, and nor does it show up in John. He came with them to a place called Gethsemane. I suppose it's worthwhile. Let's look at Mark 14, 26 and 32. Mark 14 has the same events in, in pretty much the same order that Matthew has it in. Uh, the anointing by the woman, the complaints by the disciples, uh, Judas um, grumbling about the money because he, uh, he was a thief, uh, the unleavened bread, the upper room, the uh, uh, Lord's Supper. Verse 26, uh, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Again, 27 through 31, uh, you will fall away. Uh, and Peter said, oh, not me, Lord. And uh, all the disciples were saying the same thing also. And so we skip down to verse 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. In Matthew, it says he took with him Peter and the sons of Zebedee. And he began to be distressed and very troubled. Here, the sons of Zebedee are actually named so these are the similarities in matthew and mark we have the name gethsemane does not show up in luke does not show up in john uh, in matthew and mark we're told uh, mount of olives also uh, the gospel of luke mentions the mount of olives we'll see that here in a moment 
And then um, Matthew and Mark also mention here the uh, uh, separation from Peter, James, and John. All right, but no mention of Ravine Kidron and uh, no mention of um, garden. The word garden is limited to John 18.1. All right, finally then Luke 22. Grab the third of these. The downside to paper Bibles, of course, is you've got to do your page flipping. In the, in the software, you can put a, a wonderful layout with all your four Gospels side by side and English text and Greek text all linked together and scrolling. Luke 22, 39 through 46. You'll notice that there is no gap like we have in Matthew and Mark. Reason being is because of the order of things is slightly different in, uh, in Luke's narrative here for this night in the upper room. Um, would help if I turn to the right chapter. As they're getting ready to go out, uh, something to keep in mind is uh, they're having this argument about who's going to be the greatest. And um, he tells them here, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat in verse 31. But I have prayed for you uh, that your faith may not fail and you. And once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And uh, he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And so forth. And he says, nope. Uh, gave him the, the rooster message again here. You're going to deny me three times. Um, also in this context in Luke uh, is when uh, he says, whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. Very uh, interesting here because it's different than the instructions he gave to the 70 when he sent them out two by two. And uh, he says, I tell you that uh, this which is written must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And so they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough, All right, or it is sufficient. And so keep that in mind as uh, they leave the upper room. They've got two swords with them, and we're going to see one of those swords uh, put into action when Peter decides he's going to single-handedly try to <laughs> try to rescue Jesus and keep him from getting arrested here. So then verse 39, and he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples also followed him. So we have uh, agreement with Matthew and Mark as per the Mount of Olives. Uh, we uh, have no mention of Kidron, no mention of Garden, no mention of, of Gethsemane. All right. So there's uh, more distinctions that we draw there. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Alright. So back to Matthew. Let's spend probably the bulk of our time in Matthew. Uh, although, like I say, we get those interesting terms in John 18.1. The term Kidron, the term um, of uh, garden. That's alright. Matthew 26. We'll spend most of our time here in uh, verses 36 through 46. And in point one, I'm just going to give you a, a summary, a, a combination of what all these Gospels together have to say. So it's long. It'll take a minute to write it down. Point one, Jesus and his disciples. Remember, at this point, it's only the eleven. Judas has already departed to go fetch the soldiers. And we can debate whether Matthias was there. We can debate whether um, uh, the alternative to Matthias, Judas... Barsabbas, whether he was there or not. Okay, There were two candidates that were put forward in, in Acts chapter 1 to replace um, Judas. And uh, the statement there is, is interesting. I, and it may be that there were more than just the 11 here on this particular night. But Jesus and his disciples crossed the Kidron. Call it what you want. Call it a brook, a valley, a ravine, a torrent. Depends on what Bible you're reading here today. They crossed the Kidron. Or just leave it at that. They crossed the Kidron to the Mount of Olives to a place called Gethsemane where there was a garden. This is what we glean when we combine all four Gospel records. Jesus and His disciples crossed the Kidron to the Mount of Olives to a place called Gethsemane where there was a garden. And you got Scripture attached to each one of these terms. Um, I don't mind calling it a valley or a torrent or a brook or a ravine. And, and maybe ravine is the best term or wadi. 
Now, that's another one I could have put on there. Wadi, W-A-D-I. Do you know what a wadi is? All right, a wadi is uh, it's a, a dry stream in, until it's wet. And when it's wet, it's very wet. Okay, uh, like the term torrent. Uh, in the uh, typically in the winter, in the uh, in fact, even the, the Greek word for this is connected to the word for winter, the word for storm or rain. And uh, that was the, the season where most of the, the rainfall would hit and then this gully would become dangerous. All right. Otherwise, it's just a deep ravine and you climb down one side and you climb up the other side and you're on the Mount of Olives. You've left Mount Zion and you've entered the Mount of Olives. Okay. Two mountains side by side with the Kidron as the north-south valley in between. And I suppose in English we want to have a, a different word whether there's a river present or not. <laughs> okay, uh, we're not we don't want to call it a brook if it's dry and there's no brook there. Uh, we don't call it a river if it's dry and there's no river there. Um, and maybe that's just our limitation of language. In the in the Hebrew, a nahal was a river whether it was dry or wet. I mean, whether it was there at the moment or coming back soon, uh, they would call it a nahal, uh, a river, a brook, a stream. And uh, different things there. Uh, so John 18.1, where we have reference to the Kidron. To the Mount of Olives. That's his destination. To the Mount of Olives. Uh, and that's referenced in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew 26.30, Mark 14.26, Luke 22.39. All three of the Synoptic Gospels are uh, in agreement. That uh, that was his destination. And so there's no uh, difference. If you're leaving Jerusalem and you cross the Kidron, that's where you're going to end up. You're going to end up on the Mount of Olives. Okay? Either the lower slopes or eventually you get up to the, to the top of it. We've also studied that each night this week, this is where Jesus has gone to sleep. Jesus has gone out to the Mount of Olives each night in this Passion Week. He would go into Jerusalem in the morning, but he would go back out at night. And uh, he would go to the house of, uh, of Simon. Of, uh, uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha in Bethany, which is on the, the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives. So uh, this is where he's been going each night. Um, whether or not the, uh, they took a shortcut or they took a more of an obscure route, uh, was the road being watched? Did they not want to go out at one of the main gates? Did they not want to go out the road? Uh, did he want to actually get to, this, uh, get to this garden for prayer before his arrest? Hard to say. It may be. It may be that the route they chose uh, through that ravine instead of along the roadside may have been a, a tactical decision that the Lord made. Hard to say. Um, anyway, to the place called Gethsemane. Now, John or Luke does not mention this name, but Matthew and Mark both do. Gethsemane. I'll give you the vocabulary for it in a moment. It means wine press. It means olive press is, is what it means. And... Uh, uh, given that it's on the Mount of Olives, there were several olive gardens or olive orchards, olive tree uh, orchards there. Um, not every orchard would have had its own press. It may be many of them might have or some of them might have. It could be that a single press would have been used for multiple uh, orchards. Uh, there's just really no way to know at this point what uh, the situation was like back then. And then finally, where there was a garden, where there was a garden and uh, the synoptics don't mention that but John does he uses the term for garden it is an unusual term maybe not the normal term um, but we also have other indications that it was evidently an enclosed space that it had a gate or it had an entrance uh, the disciples are mentioned as going in or coming out uh, and likewise they, they're mentioned as going in and going further in and going even further in uh, we have little clues and glimmers as to uh, Maybe uh, the size of this particular garden. We're going to find out that um, that um, not only are the disciples in there, but all the soldiers go traipsing in as well. It's large enough to contain uh, several folks, including other folks that were already there before Jesus arrived. Uh, so whatever large uh, space it was, it was sufficient enough for people to be hidden away in there and, uh, and out of view which uh, we'll see at the end of Mark's record when, uh, when he chases after the, uh, the circumstances. Well, <laughs> and if you don't know what I'm talking about, then uh, you're in for a surprise when we get to the end of uh, this account here in the Gospel of Mark. All right. So Jesus, this is, again, point one. Jesus and his disciples crossed the Kidron uh, to the Mount of Olives to a place called Gethsemane where there was a garden. And we combine all four Gospel records, and I think we have the fullest picture on this. Now, one more thing we want to pick out of John before we totally abandon John 18 
It'll come up really in the next episode when we talk about his arrest. But it is true that Jesus often met his disciples here. Subpoint A, Jesus often met his disciples here. In Luke, we just read a moment ago that this was his custom. That in Luke 22:39, that when they left the uh, upper room or when they left Jerusalem, he went out as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. Luke 22:39. And uh, that expression, as was his custom, is interesting. He came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. And... Uh, So evidently, this became the pattern throughout the Passion Week, starting with Palm Monday when he made his triumphal entry in, that each night he was proceeding out of Jerusalem to end the day, to end the night, uh, to go back to the Mount of Olives. And evidently, they stopped at this garden along the way. This garden was uh, a quiet place where they would stop, they would go inside, they'd have a prayer time, and then evidently from there, they would go to wherever their arrangements were. We don't know... um, for example, we just don't have all the information we want. We know Jesus was sleeping with, with Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus, or in their home. Uh, but we don't know about the other 11. Where were, they, you know, were they all in the same house, under the same roof? Probably not. Not in the standard four-room layout house. Um, who knows? Uh, wherever it was that uh, Peter had a mother-in-law, and, and, and uh, John had a home here, that uh, he took Mary into his home. So uh, however many, wherever else they scattered to, they would come to this garden for their closing prayer and then go to whatever, whatever buildings they were sleeping in for the night. Uh, but we have that phrase, as was his custom, in Luke 22:39, And the expression in John 18:2. the reason why Judas was able to bring the soldiers here is because this was his normal pattern. He'd often come here for prayer with his disciples. Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And we'll say more about that when we get into the next um, episode, episode 25. Do we build a doctrine on this? <laughs> what do we say? Uh, this, is, uh, this is the doctrine of don't get into a rut. <laughs> All right. Well, no, it's just common sense. All right. And things that, you know, I learned as an MP and things that you learn when you when you do uh, physical security or personal security uh, is you never want to take the same route all the time. You never want to take the uh, you know, keep the same schedule. You want to shuffle things up. You want to be a bit unpredictable. And uh, otherwise, uh, you know, assassins or troublemakers, uh, if you if they know exactly where you're going to be because you're there every single time and and you follow the same route to get there every single time you get too predictable and uh, given that this is uh the the dangerous times in which we're living in uh we better learn these lessons now before uh before the adversary is emboldened to start picking us off here in this country all right uh and if you think those days can't come think again and uh, plan on being here by the way october 6th and 7th we're going to have some uh, or sunday the 7th um we're going to have some, some missionaries here from Pakistan and, uh, and a, a brother pastor that will tell you something about uh, the danger that Christians are in in other parts of the world. All right. So Jesus often met his disciples here. It was his custom. Secondly, point B, Gethsemane means wine press. Gethsemane means wine press. And I find that to be very vivid. I find that to be extraordinary. You know, he didn't go to a garden, a place named uh, Easy Chair, <laughs> right? Didn't go to a, a garden named uh, Glory. He went to a garden named Winepress, Gethsemane, a place called Gethsemane. And the imagery of this, of course, is very prophetic. Going all the way back to Isaiah, going to Zechariah, going to some of the uh, things that we see even in, in Revelation coming up. Gethsemane means Winepress. Jesus must submit to this crushing. He must submit to this crushing. And we're going to have to consider the work that He achieved. When did He achieve it? How much was actually done literally on the cross, but how much was actually done here in the garden? When He had His final opportunities to bail and escape. And He said, no, it's for this purpose I came to this hour. And the victory He had 
when he accepted the Father's will in this garden on this night. Jesus must submit to this crushing before he can tread his own winepress. Jesus must submit to this crushing. And for that, I'm going to take you to Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11. I'm going to take you to Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 10. Jesus must submit to this crushing before he can tread his own winepress. When he comes back at second advent, there's more crushing that's going to go on, but the shoe's going to be on the other foot, we might say. All right? The crushed will become the crusher. The one in victory having been crushed. He will be treading the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. So, hopefully we can see how these these images come forth from the prophetic message and how they have their fulfillment starting on this very night. So Jesus must submit to this crushing. Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11. Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 10. They're, They're very different in their emphasis, but so let's start with Isaiah 53. I think we're all familiar with Isaiah 53, aren't we? I use it in quite a few communion services. Isaiah 53. If you're going to give, uh, you know, the whole uh, gospel can be given from the Old Testament perspective, and this chapter is a big part of it. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Remember the arm work of God. Not the finger work. The arm work. You know, finger work is creation. That's easy stuff. Arm work. Where it takes the true muscle, takes the true strength far more difficult than creation is the work that was required to to save us. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. Description, of course, of the humility of our Savior and being born uh, as as a babe in the womb. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Unlike the Gentile despots and the rulers of you know, uh, figures of history that have the great attached to the end of their name and so forth, or, or the conqueror, or what have you. No stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. In other words, his physical appearance was not what uh, people would be attracted to. He was despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I'm going to come back to this at a point when we try to evaluate the sheer amount of sorrow that he Uh, endured, that he embraced. So much so, in fact, I think it's the totality of all human sorrow uh, that he accepted in in himself, in his person. So much so that his definition is man of sorrow. Okay? What do we call Superman? The man of steel, right? Here's Jesus Christ, the man of sorrow. It actually is characteristic of his very being. If sorrow could be personified you would end up with Jesus. And that's what we did. And that's what we have here. A man of sorrows and acquainted with or intimate with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face. In other words, you just look at him and you want to look away. You do not. And the moment you recognize what you're looking at, you don't want to look anymore. You just want to turn your face. Say, oh, I don't want to look at that. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Because they weren't his own griefs. They weren't his own sorrows. He was sinless, perfect, had done nothing worthy of any thing that he endures here on this night. It was our griefs. It was our sorrows. And we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Now, both of these items, we can understand. We, and I think it's important that we take the time to evaluate. Now, wait a minute. Pierced through. I get that. That's crucifixion. That's the work on the cross. But now there's also crushed. Crushed. Okay. Now, in terms of the, the physical damage to his body, there was no crushing. Not a bone of his body was broken. Okay. Not one single bone. And the, the limit to the, to the uh, damage, the physical damage done and the whipping and the scourging and the and the piercing, and so forth, did not include any physical crushing. There was not one bone broken, not one bone crushed. So what is crushing speaking of then here? 
Is it, is it used metaphorically? Is it used if piercing is literal? Is crushing then used uh, metaphoric? And what, what kind of thing does get crushed? See, a lamb doesn't get crushed. A lamb is killed. A lamb uh, has blood poured out, but a lamb is not crushed. What gets crushed? Well, a grape gets crushed. All right. Uh, uh, in terms of the, the wine press. Okay. And so we want to understand the imagery of what's happening here. And both are taking place. The pierced through and the crushing. All right. And uh, what is the purpose for the crushing? What is the purpose for the suffering? Is it the same or is it different? What's the purpose for the crucifixion? What's the purpose for his spiritual death? Okay, that's redemption, the payment for our sins and, and so forth. But what's the purpose for the crushing? Why did he have to suffer? Why does he have to suffer? What does he learn in his sufferings? Yes, he learns obedience through the things which he suffered. That's right. And it suits him. It equips him for work to be done after the work of redemption is achieved. And so both are taking place. Smitten of God and afflicted. All right. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us. Nobody is accepted. Nobody is exempted. (laughs) There's nobody that does not need a Savior. We all do. Total depravity of all humanity. Anybody in Adam. That's all of us. But not only is it all of us, it's also each of us. I like the contrast in that. All of us kind of viewing us as a group, all totality in Adam, but then also each of us individually, one by one. I know, sure, I'm corporately, positionally in Adam, totally depraved, but I'm also individually, personally, uh, a, a vile sinner. No good. All of us and each of us. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 7. I forgot for a moment where I'm headed. I'm headed to verse 10. Uh, We have crushing already. We've seen it in verse 5. Crushing comes back again in verse 10. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. I think this oppression is what he experiences in Gethsemane. This uh, absolute soul discouragement to the point of death. And then judgment. The, uh, the trials and the, and the condemnation by the Jewish religious leaders and by the Roman political leaders. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this gener- his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. <laughs> you know, Isaiah knows. He's a man of unclean lips. He lives in the midst of a people of unclean lips. His, uh, his grave was assigned with a wicked man, with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Executed as a murderer, but totally innocent. Totally innocent. Indeed, in word and in thought. But now, verse 10, why is all this taking place? Why is this even necessary? Verse 10 gives us this explanation. Verses 10 and 11. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. The Lord was pleased to crush him. Key in on please. Good pleasure. The will of God is according to His good pleasure. Everything God does is according to His good pleasure. If it's not according to His good pleasure, it's not in His will. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If He would render Himself as a guilt offering. In other words, until He is crushed, until He is put to grief, then the complete acceptance of Him as a guilt offering is not yet prepared. Jesus Christ can say, oh, I'll be their place. Sure, I'll be their substitute. Sure, I'll take their place. But until he personally, subjectively, experientially accepts the totality of all our human grief, God the Father is not yet willing to be satisfied with the substitute's voluntary work. Does that make sense? 
Should I repeat that? The Lord was pleased. This is Yahweh Elohim. In this case, it's the Father, Yahweh, because we have both the Father and the Son in view here. So Yahweh there in verse 10 is the Father. God the Father was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Why? What does he have to learn here? Obedience. But more than that, he has to learn to identify. To identify. You know, the the sheep, in in the picture, the sheep is just a stupid animal. We identify with the sheep by putting our hand on his head, but the sheep is clueless. The sheep's just a, a dumb sheep. He doesn't even know that it's a human being with his hand on his head. All he knows is something's touching his head. Okay, oh, okay. Something's touching my head. And uh doesn't even understand that this hand touching his head is about has a knife in his other hand. Doesn't even know that. Stupid. Clueless. But Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God identifies with us completely, thoroughly, 100%, including every single amount of suffering and sorrow. Putting him to grief, if he would render himself a guilt offering, he, this here's the result, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. What offspring does God the Son have? Oh, you're not an offspring of God the Son. You're a brother or sister of God the Son. We're brethren with Jesus Christ. We're sons of God the Father. That's right. But the fullness of times with a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ, they will be His offspring. He will be their God. uh, He will be their Father. They will be His children. That's why He's called Eternal Father in in, uh, Isaiah 9.6. Alright. As a result, as a result... It's not my opinion. I'm just showing you what the text says. As a result of the anguish of his soul. So the the soul of Jesus Christ and the anguish he's going to try to communicate to Peter, James, and John. And they don't have a clue. They're they're so wrapped up in their own anguish they keep falling asleep on this night. They can't even pray for one hour. But as a result of the anguish of his soul, he, God the Father, will see it and be satisfied. And be satisfied. This comes, I, I can't stress this enough, and I'll try. I'll do my best in the subpoints, and I'll do my best this week and next, and on into however long it takes us to do the Gethsemane episode. Satisfaction. Okay? This is the propitiation of God and the Father. This is why we're saved. This is why the plan of God is effective. This is why the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is effective. Okay? Not because of what Jesus did, although it's part of it, but because God the Father was satisfied with what Jesus did. That's the bigger part of it. Okay? You say, well, the, 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 the payment was infinite, right? Yes. So it had to have been sufficient, Right? I guess, if you say so. But who says that infinite would be sufficient? Who says that that the Father would be satisfied? Okay. God the Father says He's satisfied. And when God the Father says why He's satisfied, we better pay attention. We better pay attention. Jesus Christ said it is finished because He knew the Father was satisfied. But why was the Father satisfied? Why was the Father willing to accept a substitute? Okay. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. I I think we do fine. We we don't have a flaw. We've got a great gospel message. It's it's the biblical gospel message. Substitutionary atonement. Yes. Uh, That Jesus Christ took our place. Absolutely. That uh, He accomplished the work we weren't qualified to do. I get that. That God the Father was satisfied. Yes. I know God the Father was satisfied. Why was God the Father satisfied? It's a question we don't usually ask. But it's a question that gets answered here. We're told, as a result, as a result of the anguish of His soul, God the Father will see it and be satisfied. By His knowledge. 
So what is it that the father sees? Does he see simply anguish for anguish's sake? He sees anguish because he's a sadomasochist and he just, he just, he's a demented, torturing God that takes pleasure out of, out of uh, butchering his son? No. I read that last week and made me want to puke. Some God-hater mocking the plan of salvation as if somehow this bloodthirsty, you know, primitive God of human sacrifice is dementedly in pleasure of, of torturing his, his son. Okay, no, it's not the anguish. It's the result of the anguish, but it's the knowledge. He will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. What did he learn in the anguish? What did he gain in an experiential knowledge? All right. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Fully aware, fully accountable. In other words, yes, he's obeying the Father. But the Father says, I'm not going to accept your obedience until you know completely what this obedience is going to cost you. Until you know completely. See, the Father is not going to accept a, 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 a naive obedience. A naive, yes, I'll go to the cross. Yes, I'll take humanity's place. Not knowing experientially, not knowing the totality of human suffering. Until he knows it, God the Father is not willing to accept the substitutionary work. Otherwise, Jesus is no different than Peter. Oh, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll go with you. I won't fail you. You know, Peter was a moron. Peter didn't know. Okay, and Peter failed. As soon as things got tough, ran for the hills. Denied. Oh, I don't know him. No, I don't know him. What are you talking about? I'm not a Galilean. I'm not with them. And old Peter saying that he would go with him to ready to die with you, Jesus. See? Yeah. I don't want to be too rough on Peter. I probably have been worse than Peter, right? Um, <laughs> at least Peter was trying to sneak in and, and see what was going on. I don't know if I'd have had that much courage. In any event. The point being is Peter didn't have a clue. And when he made his boastful, oh, I'll do that, I'll do that, he didn't have a clue. And, you know, that's not good. It's not what the Father expects of us. The Father expects of us, when we walk by faith, He expects for us to be making application of doctrine. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. When we walk by faith, it's because we know what's expected of us. And we are living what we know. That's the walk of faith. That's the walk of obedience. He wants us to be volitionally on board with what it is He expects for us to do. That's the, the good pleasure of the will of God. See, not just mindless obedience with no clue what's going on. Okay? When uh, Paul told um, Philemon, find that real quick, uh, Philemon, it's only one chapter, probably verse 7 or thereabouts. Um, he says, um, no, it's not verse 7. It's uh, verse 14. When he says, I'm sending you back, your runaway slave here, Onesimus. I wanted to keep him with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But notice what he says. He says, without your consent. Without your consent. In other words, you've got to have knowledge of what's going on. So you can volitionally participate as a sweet-smelling savor. Without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. That's the will of God right there. With your understanding, with your knowledge, with your free will, with your consent. And without it, Paul says, I don't want any part of it. Compulsion does not please God the Father. When we give, it must be not grudgingly or under compulsion. God hates that. God loves the cheerful giver. 
God loves the believer who knows what he's doing, who knows why he's doing it, and who does it because he wants to. That's the will of God. And likewise, First uh, Peter 5. Let me give you all three of these. Not in my notes, it's just bugs me sometimes. <laughs> so Philemon 14. If it's not of your good will, if it's not of your volition, without your consent, without your volitional choice, I'm not going to do this. Otherwise, it's just compulsion. Even if you're ignorant of it, it's still compulsion because I didn't give you a chance to either do it or not do it. But if I give you the chance to do it or not do it, then when you do do it, it's of your own free will. It's of your own choice. And that's what pleases God the Father. That's what makes it good. Okay? Your goodness. This compulsion is not good. Okay? Same thing we have in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 in the, in the, the grace giving. Not grudgingly or under compulsion. That's uh, 9 7. 2 Corinthians 9 7. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart. And God is no different than us. What is God's good pleasure? His, the will of God is His good pleasure. It's what He's purposed in His heart. His good pleasure is His good purpose. Okay, Not grudgingly or under compulsion, because God doesn't love that. What does God love? The cheerful giver. That's right. The one that volitionally makes choices based on their good pleasure. We're in God's image. When we make decisions based on our good pleasure, we're imaging God. God makes His decisions based on His good pleasure. Compulsion, grudgingly, God hates that. Okay? So 2 Corinthians 8, no, 7. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Philemon 14. 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. Am I giving these away? I'm starting to wonder, did I put these in the notes? No, I didn't put these in the notes. Okay. So I give them to you. They're not in the notes. This is extra credit. I won't even charge you anything. How about that? 1 Peter 5. You know, I could double the price of admission this morning. and Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I'll still come out ahead. Notice, shepherd the flock of God among you. 1 Peter 5, 2. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. And goes on to say, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor as yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. But just for the moment, focus in on verse 2 and notice, compulsion is not God's will. Free will, volition is. Not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. So this is why, as I go back to Isaiah 53, and I realize that the Father was well pleased to crush Him if He would render Himself a guilt offering. And it's through His knowledge... Again, I should have left my finger there. Isaiah 53. What did he learn? The knowledge he gained, the experiential knowledge he acquired when he accepted that sorrow, that grief. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, Jesus Christ, the one without sin, my servant will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. But He will do so completely, 100% aware of what those iniquities are, what that sin is, the totality of what that suffering is. Until He's fully aware of all that, experientially, God the Father will not accept His substitutionary work of atonement. And therefore, I will allot Him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself, he poured out his soul to death. He said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. He poured out his soul. It was his sweet smelling savor. It was his own soul. 
Remember, Jesus is not only the priest, he's also the sacrifice, the altar of his soul. He poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So Jesus must submit to this crushing. And this was the volitional battle he accepted in Gethsemane. To the point where when Judas arrives with the soldiers, he's already had the victory. He's ready to be arrested. He's ready to go get pierced because his soul has already been crushed. His soul has already been crushed. Now, let's go from Isaiah 53.10 to Hebrews 5.7. Hebrews 5.7. We have the divine commentary on what this prayer life was like. I mentioned in my opening prayer, we're going to have a hard time understanding Jesus and his prayer life. Well, Hebrews 5, we have a description of his prayer life. 7 through 10. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Able to save him. With God, all things are possible. Able to save him. Could the Father have spared the Son? Could God the Father have said, All right, stop. I'm taking this cup from you. You don't have to go to the cross. Could the Father have done that? Yes and no. (laughs) Yes, he could have. But then we wouldn't have been saved. Okay? So yes, he's able to save his son. But only if he chooses to not execute his plan to redeem humanity. He's able to save his son, but if not. But if not. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, Our God is able to save us. But if not... (laughs) We still won't bow down and worship at your, at your idol. And they got thrown in the fiery furnace. Our God is able to save us, but if not. Jesus prayed to the one who was able to save his soul, but if not. He says, not my will, but thine be done. He says, if possible, let this cup pass by me, but if not. If not. If the only way possible is to fail to achieve the plan of redemption, then let's do it. And he has to do so in full awareness of what this means. Experiencing that sorrow. Experiencing that grief. Alright. And he was heard because of his piety. There's a whole month of sermons right there. Verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. In other words, he learned what the full price of obedience was going to be. And because he learned that, God the Father was satisfied that he knew that and by his knowledge the righteous one truly became our substitute he identified with us we can identify with him but here's the first sheep that ever identified with the one that killed him and by his full knowledge of all of us he learned this what obedience to the plan of god is all about having been uh, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered before midnight on that Thursday night, or maybe right after midnight on that Friday morning, whatever it was, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Having been made perfect... 
I think that was also in the Garden of Gethsemane. In other words, being made the perfect high priest, the perfect substitute, the perfect sacrifice which would satisfy God the Father's eternal standards of righteousness and justice, whereby wrath poured out on the perfect sacrifice would satisfy the Father's eternal integrity. He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, made perfect, ready to go and accomplish His priestly work. And He does so the next day. Three hours of darkness hanging on that cross. He's a high priest, the apostle and high priest of our confession, accomplishing that work. Hmm. Is this easy stuff to, to dwell on? <laughs> it gets deep. And we realize when we think we know it, we know fringes. And there's much more to know. And uh, unless you are humble, you're not going to get any of this. Says concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. <laughs> unless you're humble, unless you're spirit-filled, unless you are ready to to, uh, to let the Holy Spirit take you into all things, even the deep things of God, then what we're teaching here today is uh, just gonna. Whoosh, what's that all about? He goes into a garden with his disciples. Okay. His, he's troubled. All right. No, we don't even have a clue. We think we know what troubles are about because we experience them. But I only experience one person's worth of troubles. Okay, Perhaps a few more if you develop sacrificial love and you start to embrace the troubles of others. Okay, So I can, in part, I can envision the troubles of myself, the troubles of my wife, the troubles of my children, the troubles of my flock, the troubles of those for which in agape love I, uh, they're, they're, I weep with those who weep and their struggles are my struggles. Okay, But still, what am I talking about? I'm talking about dozens, a few hundred. What do we have capacity to bear? Okay, Billions? No. <laughs> we don't have a clue. The, the struggles that Jesus Christ accepted. That he, the mind of his soul was open to understand the grief of all humanity. And only with that full knowledge, fully aware, fully uh, experientially knowledgeable about what he was about to do, is he a, a perfected high priest ready to go do that work. Under, only under those conditions will the Father be satisfied that the substitutionary death has full value, that it has full meaning. If it's ignorant, what meaning is there in that? What value is there in that? It's got to be volitionally accountable to have any value. So Jesus must submit to this crushing before He can tread His own wine press. And I'm out of time. Isaiah 63, 1-6, Revelation 19:15. We'll come back to that next week. Okay, he's trampling through the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Are sto right? You know, we sing, glory, glory, hallelujah. Okay, when he comes back in second advent, there'll be more grapes trampled. Only he'll be he'll be the one doing the trampling. Okay, in victory, in conquest, bringing the bringing the darkness to an end. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for today. We got a good jump on a on a tough passage, Father. Uh, Open the minds of our understanding. Help us to realize uh, the plan you put into motion. A plan that required the, the death of your son. Because you wanted this plan to be a volitional plan. Including angels and humans alike. Those that would rebel. And those that would be redeemed. And Father, I thank you that this plan was possible. Because of a son who did not rebel because of a son who would provide the satisfactory redemption price. Father, I just ask again that you would open the minds of our understanding. These are not easy concepts. Some of the most brilliant 
theological geniuses for hundreds of years have been debating sovereignty and volition. They've been debating Calvinism and Arminianism. Some of the most brilliant minds that have ever studied your truth have uh, have struggled in, in some of these things. And So, Father, we come before You not um, superior in anything we're dealing with, just walking in grace, thankful that, that You're faithful to guide us into the truth, praying, Father, that You would, that we would, that you would humble us enough that with humility we can receive this Word implanted. Thank You, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.